time to gather around God's word and to turn our hearts and our minds uh, particularly to the passion of our Lord, um, to the suffering of our Lord, uh, which uh, he was pleased uh, to undergo um, on our behalf and in our stead, uh, to set on display the wonders of God's love uh, in uh, the accomplishment of the salvation of sinners, those who had turned their backs on him. And so as you'll uh, notice in your bulletin, we'll uh, hear the narrative as recorded by Luke read uh, and interspersed throughout the narrative. We'll have opportunity to um, meditate in song as well as we lift up our praise and uh, our adoration of our suffering king. Uh, who yielded his life in our stead. And so with that, I'll invite you to take a moment. We'll uh, quiet our hearts and our minds, and then I'll open us in prayer, and you'll see that we have a responsive reading to begin, uh, where the minister, uh, I will read the normal print, and the congregation will read the bold print. But first, let's take a moment to quiet our hearts. I invite you to stand and join me in prayer. Mm. Almighty God, you are worthy of all adoration on this by virtue of who you are as creator. Your power and your glory is everywhere on display and as your creatures, O oh Lord, we ought rightly to praise you for you are worthy and yet the sad state uh, brought about by our father Adam is such that uh, we do not worship you. And so in the fullness of time, you sent forth your son uh, to retrieve worshipers who were lost in darkest night, who had ruined themselves by sin, And so we gather, Lord, delighting to confess that you are doubly worthy of adoration by virtue of who you are in creation and who you are in redemption. And so we pray that as we consider the great cost of our redemption this evening, that you would humble our hearts, that you would enable us to receive your word in faith, that you would place us in awe of our King who willingly set aside the riches which were His by right to assume a dreadful position and to retrieve us from darkest night. Magnify the Son even now 
as you press upon our hearts the horror of sin and the excellencies of your grace and the wonders of our King and our God. For we ask in his name, amen. This is God's word. All we like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But he was Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are Amen. You can take your Trinity Psalter hymnal and turn to Psalm 13. We'll sing, How Long Will You Forget Me, Lord? Amen. You may be seated. Lend your attention. This is the word of God. Luke 23, 1 through 5. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, 
Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. Thus far the reading of God's word. You can remain seated and we'll sing hymn 336, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. God's word. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length. 
but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Thus far God's word. Once more you can remain seated and we'll sing hymn 337. Ah, holy Jesus, how hast thou offended.
This is God's word. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Thus far God's word. I invite you to stand as we sing the first four verses of Psalm 22a, the first four verses. Let's stand and sing together.
seated. This is God's word. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and weep for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Thus far God's word. I'll invite you to remain seated. We're going to take up verses 5, 6, and 7. 5, 6, and 7.
this is God's word. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Thus far, God's word. You can remain seated and turn to him 341. Alas, and did my Savior bleed.
this is God's word. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Thus far God's word. I invite you to stand as we sing hymn 343, What Wondrous Love Is This?
Men, you may be seated. We turn from the Gospel of Luke to the letter of Paul to the Philippians, a well-known passage from chapter 2. I'll read verses 3 through verse 8. This is God's word. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is God's word. We have one of the most exalted portraits of our Lord, our Redeemer, our Mediator in these verses. It's worth pointing out that what gave rise to this exalted song, some have even suggested that Paul is incorporating a hymn, an early Christian hymn, into his letter. Uh, So lovely is the language. Um, So exalted, so elevated is this verse that there's been speculation, wonder at perhaps this is one of the songs, the new songs, adorning that glorious age of the gospel. But it's worth noting that what gives rise to this exalted hymn to Christ is a rather earthy problem. It's enmeshed plainly in the life of the church. He says, you're selfish. You're arrogant as Christians. How can this be? It's well known that this is one of the congregations among all of the churches with whom Paul had fellowship, whom Paul loved the most. You're not supposed to have favorites, I guess, amongst your churches and amongst your children, but it's plain. Paul can't hide it. Paul rejoices in them. He longs to see them. He delights. There's some unique fondness, some unique bond, and yet that didn't keep him from saying hard things. His earnest desire would, for them as a church was their unity, and he knew that the single feature of the flesh with which wars more than anything else against unity is pride self-seeking do nothing out of selfish ambition do nothing out of arrogance 
consider others as more significant than yourselves. He says, we bear the name of a king who did this very thing. In fact, who did this very thing to an unfathomable degree. But he doesn't just set Christ forward as an example for us. He isn't interested in just saying the name that you bear is a remarkable one. Shame on you for not living up to it. He's interested in profiling the excellencies of this king, the excellencies of this king's life as that which the king came to make us partakers in. That's how verse 5 reads plainly. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's not just saying, look at the eternal Son of God in his glory. Look at how he was willing to consider you, though he was in that state of glory. Look at how he was willing to set aside the crown to take up a cross for you. And go and do likewise. He doesn't just say that. (laughs) He says he came to save you from your relentless self-seeking. For this is the heart of sin. (laughs) And he came to save you from sin. It's worth pointing out that this is some of the highest doctrine that we possess as a church, the person of Christ, the work of Christ. And Paul sets it forth as that which is the fuel for our life as Christians. It's not just this object of speculative wonder. It's the very heartbeat of our lives as the people of God, as those who have been purchased from the darkness of relentless self-seeking and the destructive courses that open in the wake of that. Look at the remarkable course he sketches out for us. The one who is in the form of God. This is an incredible starting point. Paul says, Christ Jesus being in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He brings us into a mystery, doesn't he? I mean, he's bringing us into the intra-Trinitarian life before all worlds. He's ushering us to a window through which we glimpse the unapproachable light. He's saying, the eternal Son, very God of very God, light of light, (laughs) eternally blessed, eternally the object of the Father's delight, eternally delighting in the Father, in that blessed communion before all worlds, he had a thought. That's what he says. 
He invites us not only into that blessed communion, but into the mind of God. That's what he does. He's already said, have this mind among you. This is Christ's mind. This is the Son's mind. And then he tells us what the mind is. He says, he does not consider equality with God as a thing to be seized upon. As a thing to be clung to. As a thing to be exploited for his own benefit with no consideration of others. That's in the eternal state of blessedness. Think about how different, how difficult it is to think of others when you're comfortable. When I'm at a feast with friends at a table full of good food, good wine, close family, the last thing on my mind is the suffering of others. It's the furthest thought from my mind. The last thing on your mind when you're comfortable is how can I become uncomfortable? Think of your warm bed on a cold morning. The most dreadful thought in the world is leaving that bed. The eternal son in the midst of a bliss that is difficult to even begin to search out. Thought of us. He did not consider equality with God as a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? It means instead of thinking of his position as something to be levied for his gain, he thought of his position as something to be levied for the gain of others, for the good of others. Think about how relentless the refrain in your own mind is. What do I have? What are my opportunities? How can I seize upon them to advance my position? How can I gain? How can I gain? How can I gain? Maybe you think, how can I gain for the sake of my family? The king... The son in this state thought, how can they gain even if it means that I lose? Because lose he did. Mm. That's what Paul points out. He says this remarkable mind, this remarkable thought opened up a remarkable step down. He says he didn't consider equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. A lot of ink has been spilled of this verb. It's very simple. What does it mean that he emptied himself? It means that the one who was king and who very plainly appeared as king before all worlds, who was the visible representation of glory, who was the radiance of God's splendor as the sun, he took to himself our nature. He 
he became man and thus veiled his glory. That's how Paul explains it. He emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. When he was born, he was born in a stable. He wasn't born in a palace. It said that he had no place to lay his head. He wasn't adorned in robes. His fare wasn't rich food. He had no form or majesty that we would look upon him. The maker of heaven and earth, the Lord of glory, walked about Israel and nobody recognized him. The wonder of the maker standing among them. The wonder that he himself was upholding their ability to see while they didn't see. (laughs) Come up with a combination of words that enters into that wonder. That's what Paul marvels at. That the one who in the midst of this blessed fellowship considered others and not just as an abstract thought, but as that which propelled him into this descent, into this trajectory of humiliation. Here marvels that very God, a very God, became man. We've remarked before, it was no great indignity for any of us to be born. And birth comes with quite a bit of indignity. (laughs) But it was suitable for us, it was fitting for us For him, it was condescension to an infinite depth, the eternal entering time, the infinite taking on finitude. He became man, he became a servant. The Lord of glory became a servant. And Paul closes by marveling that he was a good servant. That's how he closes, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're servants. We're just bad servants. That's what it means to be a human being. To be a human being means to be a servant. It means to be dependent. It means not to be a God. But from the very beginning, we've adopted this course that says, no, we are gods, and thus we legitimize enslaving others to ourselves, (laughs) subjecting others to serve us or railing at them when they refuse to do so. We're usurpers. To usurp means to take the rightful position of another and wrongfully take it unto oneself. Prince John, 
In the absence of good King Richard, Robin Hood, that usurper, foul. It's all of us. I'm struck by the gospel narrative. The one who's released is an insurrectionist. What's an insurrectionist? One who seeks to overthrow lawful order. It's us. It's right there. Who's about to be released as the one who's innocent goes to the cross? Insurrectionists. Usurper servants. Fools who've convinced themselves that they're gods while the true God is nailed upon a cross. What wondrous love. While he nothing heedeth, God intercedeth. Isn't that what we read as well? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's the most charitable thing that has ever been said. We have a hard time viewing the actions of others through a lens of charity, don't we? The Lord of glory interceded for those crucifying him by pleading with the Father, saying they don't know what they're doing. This is a remarkable king. Paul marvels at his obedience. Elsewhere, he contrasts the disobedience of the one, Adam, and all those who are in him, with the obedience of the one, the Lord Jesus Christ, and those whom he has saved thereby. We are saved by the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give thanks. Give thanks as those who have been disobedient. Give thanks for even your obedience is cut with your disobedience. Give thanks that we're saved by his obedience. Obedience to what? He profiles obedience here, right? That's what he says. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient unto what? They certainly would say the moral law. Right? He obeyed the moral law of God. What's the moral law of God? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Certainly he did that. We saw it even here. He's loving these women. They're weeping for him. He's like, beloved, don't weep for me. Even there, he's loving his neighbor. He's loving his neighbor, interceding on their behalf. Father, forgive them. He's loving his neighbor. Even on the cross, he's glorifying his father. Did you hear it? Into your hands I commit my spirit. Even there. He loved his father. Certainly we would say he obeyed the moral law, but it's more than that. Oh, give me the strength to capture this. He obeyed the father's will. 
to save sinners. That means the Father willed to save you. He yielded himself in perfect obedience to the will of God, which was what? That he would come and truly save you. His whole life, that's what he's saying. I came not to do my will. I came not to do my will. Oh, we only do our will left to ourselves. John Newton has this beautiful meditation on the foolishness of man trying to cast off the will of God and pursue his own will. He says, picture animals on the shore thinking that their life is in the heart of the sea. Picture fish in the sea foolishly thinking that their life is on the land. So it is for man thinking that he lives apart from God's will. Christ came to do the Father's will. And what was the Father's will? To save you. To rescue you. To provide true atonement for your sins and mine. To provide eternal life for those who had opted for death. To bring into light those who loved the darkness. He obeyed that will. And offered his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Why? Because the Father sent him. It's the love of the Father that we see on display in the grace of the Son. Paul closes marveling. He is He's drawn to it. He's, he's captured by the pinnacle of this obedience, becoming obedient to the point of death, death even on a cross. In the Greek, it's striking. It's death, 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 death. It just latches onto the eye. It's inescapable. It's right there. What's the shape of his love? What's the shape of the Father's love? It's the son's death in your stead. How do I know that God loves me? Wait, go one step further back. How do I know that he knows me? Isn't that a huge conundrum for love? You don't really know me. You don't really know what you think you're loving. As close as you get to me, there's something you don't know. There's always something we don't know. Spend your whole life getting to know a person. There will be a veil. And behind that veil will be something ugly. 
How do we know he knows us? One, he made us. Two, the testimony is that our hearts are playing for him. Three, the son died. Do you want proof that he knows the heinousness of your sin? Look at the cross. Look at the dreadful cost on display publicly. This was not a socially acceptable affair. This was not a mild face of the cost of sin. This was a grotesque affair. A man strung upon a tree, suspended between heaven and earth, a curse. He knows the truth about sin. And that's what makes the magnitude of his love unfathomable because he gave Christ even still. The son went even still. Paul looks at the cross and he sees there a confirmation of a love that surpasses all others. As the glory of this God is set on display in the death of the beloved son to save sinners. What should we say? We should say there has never been a love like this. People want to be loved, don't they? People want to be assured that they are loved. There's a stability, a power, a balm in being loved that nothing else comes close to. Paul will elsewhere say, the life I now live in the flesh, marred with all of its difficulties, marred with all of its tribulations, marred with all of my failures, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you wonder if God loves you? Look at the cross. What shall we say to this? How shameful our pride is. How shameful it is that we're so quick to boast in anything that's not the cross. How sad it is to see households rent asunder by children who bear the name, who have been bought with this blood, contending for their own self-interest, incapable of glimpsing even a flicker 
of the humility on display in the eternal king of glory nailed upon a cross for my salvation. I have it in me. I know you have it in you. We're going to sing in a moment, and I pray we sing it with meaning. When I survey the wondrous cross, let us seek the Lord's grace to pour contempt on all of our pride. (laughs) And that's taking us right back to the beginning. The beauty of this humility, the beauty of this other concernedness, this beautiful king who is willing to pay such a dreadful cost that good would come not unto the lovely, but unto the unlovely, thereby making them lovely. (laughs) He says the beauty of that mind, the beauty of that heart is yours in him. It's not something you can muster up on your own. As lovely as it is, unless you are in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, you do not know this love, and you have no access to this power. Know him by faith. I trust it's evident that he is supremely worthy. What other king does this? Considers how they can lose so that others may gain. What other king does that? Is there any other king? No, there is not. He is worthy. Come to him, bow to him. And for those who are in him, rejoice in this love and seek this life that by his grace it might characterize our life together more and more so that more and more the world may see that truly he is worthy. Let's pray. Mm. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we adore you. Press this upon our hearts, this infinite worth of our beloved King, that we may rejoice, weak, sinful though we are, in true faith, tasting of his life even now. We ask in his name, amen. I invite you to stand. We'll close with hymn 338, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.
me in prayer. Our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you thanks for such a wonderful salvation. And you were pleased to make known the riches of your grace and your mercy. For in this way you loved the world, sending forth the Son. And whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Strengthen our faith by the proclamation of your word and build us up in this love which is ours as you have placed us in Jesus Christ. Do this more and more until he returns. And your glory fills the new creation. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Amen, you are dismissed.